to continue our study in the life of David. And honestly, it's not an expansive study. It's just this narrow time in David's life in which there was a prophetic word, actually several prophetic words given over him. And then we are seeing how these prophetic words were actually something of a a prophetic nature for the church. That there is something that is absolutely inevitable when it comes to God's promises. And, you know, it it doesn't feel that way sometimes. Sometimes we go through so much pain and we just kind of wonder, God, where are you? Now, we looked at that last week when we saw David, even though there's this prophetic word on his life, I would venture to say it took anywhere from five to ten years for it to come to pass. And some of you feel as if God has spoken some things to your heart, and the truth is it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And you're kind of scratching your head and you're kind of wondering, how on earth is this ever going to come to pass? And you know what? Sometimes God has to put our back up against a wall in which there is no other recourse, no other way, but he has to come through. Last night, I I don't guess this, this is the first time I have ever had a cramp in my leg and there was nothing I could do about it. I woke my wife up because I was in so much pain. I wasn't screaming, but I was close to it. All right. If you were outside my bedroom door, you would definitely have heard me. And I, I w- it was on the inside of my leg. Apparently, when my knee was hurting by the end of yesterday work, I had been walking so much. I think I may have just stressed that muscle out a lot as I was limping. And I just, I woke up in the middle of the night and I tell you what, it not, I have had this happen where, you know, you get a leg cramp and you just stand up, you kind of stretch it out and you walk it off. I tried getting up. I could not get up. I, I sat upright. There was nothing I can do. It was just in so much pain. I was just pressing on it. And I, I can't tell you, I mean, it, it's sore today. It is sore. I just had to wait it out. And sometimes that is exactly where you feel that you're at. There is, you feel as if you are in the middle of this pain and there's nothing you can do. Now, David found himself in the midst of that pain. He found himself in the cave of Adullam. And he said, God, I'm just, it was one of donkey's songs, right? Here all by myself, right? And, and it's like, God, what is this? And God sent him 400 men. And David, and they were all men who were in distress and in debt and dis- and disappointed. And it was like, God, thank you so much, right? And, but God met a need because from the midst of that 400 that came to him, the, you know, the strays, have you ever had stray cats coming to you? These were like strays coming to, 400 stray cats coming to David, right? And, but God used them. Three of his mighty men. The three mighty men came from that group. Most of his 30 mighty men came from that group. God knew what he was doing. David didn't. I'm sure he didn't. And I want to suggest to you today now, David finds himself in a very different and difficult situation. Before I get to that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to tell you a little story. I can remember years and years ago, I was working my way through college, and I did painting, and I cut lawns, and any kind of odd jobs that I could do to work my way through college. I was a youth leader. They paid me a whopping five bucks an hour, woohoo, for five bucks an hour, right? And I, I, I worked hard, and, and this one lady had me come in to paint her daughter's room. Her daughter was in the hospital. She was going to get out, and she wanted her daughter's room looking just awesome and amazing. One of the walls, she just wanted me to put, you know, those foot-by-foot sticky-backed mirror pieces, and I did the whole wall that way, right? And then she wanted me to paint the rest of the four walls. Problem, all of the walls in the room, this is strange, but all of the walls had paneling, and she did not want me to pull the paneling off, so I had to paint the paneling orange. Yes, orange. Okay, I didn't have any say in that, but I did recommend to her, I said, you know, I know you're wanting to to make shortcuts here and cut corners, but I think you really want me to pull this paneling off. And, you know, I don't know what's behind it, and and it, it could, there could be a lot of tearing and so on, depending on if it's glued or nailed or what have you, but um, I, I would pull it off to paint it. 
because paint does not stick well at all to paneling. She said, no, no, just, just paint it orange. So I painted it. Within a year, you know, I, I, I bumped into her again. And sure enough, just every little bump against the wall, paint peeled here and there. But she was happy. You know what? Here's the truth, that we can cut corners, and generally, cor- cutting corners is not a good idea because they skip necessary steps. When those necessary steps point in a different direction than what we really are wanting to go, that's where this internal tug of war begins. And that's where David finds himself. He's conflicted. There is an opportunity for him to take a shortcut. Does he take it or does he not? And you're going to see the conflict. I'm going to read the entire chapter, but then I'm going to look at the next two chapters because I want us to see something in these three chapters that I think we're going to, God's going to minister to us. But before I do that, let me open a prayer, all right? Father, I just ask you that your spirit right now would be our teacher and that you would open our eyes to the text of your scripture and give us insight into your word, Lord. Show us, Father, how we are to walk this out as your children. Father, you have called us to walk always in triumphal procession. That's your promise. That's not something we do. That's something you do. And I just pray today, show us how David did it and how we might do it in every situation we face for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So are you there with me? First Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he told, <coughs> excuse me, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. What the, a name for a place, right? Yeah, I grew up right next to that. Yeah, what do you call it? The crags of the wild goats, right? Anyway, so that's where, that's where he is. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. Saul did. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. They're being very discreet here, so you know. David and his men were far back in the cave. There's 400 men. This is a huge cave. It's like a cavern. David and his 400 men all the way back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day. Listen to this. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I want you to underline that phrase, as you wish, all right? That is not a line from Princess Bride, by the way, okay? Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe, uh, Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father looked, notice how he treats Saul with great respect. Even though Saul is like going insane, seeking to kill David out of jealousy and anger. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now, understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, 
From evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good that good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. See, Saul has heard these prophetic words. <clears throat> now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And may I say, David kept his word and did not cut off anyone from his family. But because of Saul's sin in killing the Gibeonites, that's much later, it is because of Saul that many in his family died. It was because of Saul that his four sons with him on Mount Gilboa died with their father. So David was good to his word. We're going to see in just a moment Saul was not. And in fact, because of Saul's sin, so much was brought upon King Saul. So we see here a picture of David. Saul comes into the cave. What an amazing opportunity. His men remind him of a prophetic word. Don't you remember the day when you were told that the, that the Lord would deliver your enemy into your hands and that you will do with him as you wish? This is it, David. Now is your chance. Kill him. Take his life. After all, church, listen, Saul's been pursuing him. Now, Saul has not gotten a hold of him. Saul has not harmed him, but Saul is pursuing him. His goal is to kill David. He thinks David is a conspirator. I mean, is that right, church? Is David a conspirator? You're shaking your head. Just say it out loud. No, he's not. No, that's right. David is not only innocent, but the Lord's hand is upon him. And Saul knows this. Hmm. Saul knows that the Lord's hand is on David, and yet Saul continues to pursue David. He fears, what if David becomes king? Not only will I die, but he'll, pull my, he'll put my entire family to death. This is what he's thinking. Obviously not true, but that's what he's thinking. David has this amazing opportunity. David realizes, I can solve all my problems. I can sneak up behind him. Apparently, King Saul took his robe off and set it down beside him. It was a kingly robe. He set it down beside him to relieve himself, and that's when David cut it off. So David was most certainly within striking distance, but he did not. Why didn't he? Because David knew that shortcuts are a bad idea. David knew that Saul was God's anointed. Psalm 105.15 says this. It says, do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Now, this is a word in Psalm, of course, but it's spoken about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were considered prophets. They were considered the anointed of the Lord. They weren't kings. But when God anoints someone, we don't, take our, we, we don't take their life. Not when God anoints them. And Saul had been anointed by the Lord. And so David, under biblical principle, knew, no touchy. He is, I'm not going to lay a hand on him. What a great opportunity to be able to promote himself, to be able to 
if you will, force this prophetic, all of these prophetic words that God had given him. There were many of them. I can force them into play. I can make them happen. But did David do that? Absolutely did not. This happens again. Just skip over two more chapters. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what happens. In 1 Samuel 26, <laughs> a very similar situation in which, Dave, in which David's men come to Saul's men in a, 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 we'll call it a valley, and David at night sneaks down into Saul's camp, and he has his bodyguards, and even Abner, his commander-in-chief, the, the uh, commander of his army, sleeping near him. Saul, excuse me, David sneaks into camp, takes his spear and his jug, goes back to where he was up on a ridge, and then calls to Abner and says, Abner, look what I have in my hand. You were not protecting your master tonight. And then he speaks to Saul and he says, Saul, I spared your life again. I, I am not going to take your life. I am not going to force the hand of God in bringing these prophetic words to pass. He left that in God's hands. He refused to take the shortcut. And so we see again that David had this opportunity to take Saul's life, but he refused. Do you think that perhaps the writer of 1 Samuel, and we don't know who it is, my guess is Gad the seer, but we don't know. Could have been Nathan. Samuel may well have written some of it, but if you read chapter 25, verse 1, it talks about how Samuel had died. So Samuel did not write 1 Samuel, or at least not all of it, if you were wondering. So Samuel is, dies in, cha in chapter 25, verse 1. And here we have in tw verse chapter 24, 26, David sparing Saul's life twice. I think maybe that this is a pretty important principle in the heart of the prophet that is writing this history. See, it's not just history. This is prophetic history. This is history that when it's written down, it speaks to the heart of the people. And my prayer this morning is, as we read through this prophetic history, that the Spirit of God will speak to your life. So what is in chapter 25, right in between these two chapters? The story of Nabal. Let me introduce you to Nabal. Nabal is from the tribe of Caleb. Let me just read the introduction to his... <coughs> to David's encounter. A uh, little bit of verse 1, it says, Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. Now, that's pretty close to the Dead Sea, a little bit further south than in Gedi. And a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. Wealthy, surly, mean, arrogant. And David watches over his sheep. David's men watch over his sheep, and they're expecting something in return. There's some cost that David incurred in this venture, just to be kind. And he's simply asking, you know, I, I saved your sheep shearers and we, we protected them. No one came near them. I'm going to guess that thieves many times could steal, even sheep, maybe even the wool that's being sheared, bring harm to the sheep shearers, but none of that happened. David is in essence saying, I did a kindness. Can you, is there something that you can do to help us out with regard to our supplies? And Kayla, excuse me, and Nabal is incensed. Absolutely not. Who are you? A lot of slaves run away from their masters these days. See, he knows what's going on. He knows that David is a fugitive in Judah, the, the land of Judah. David hears word of this, and something stirs up. He wants to kill Nabal. Abigail hears wind of this, 
I'm going to guess Abigail is in charge of the food. She has the authority to dispense food as she will. And so she does not go to her surly and mean husband, but she says, I have the authority to do this. And so she chooses to pull together donkeys of food and bring them to David. And she says, please don't take his life. I want to read a verse to you here. This is what, how prophetic and profound this is that she says to David. By the way, verse 20, I'll back up to verse 25. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. Spares no words. Wives, I would encourage you not to speak of your husbands this way. I'm going to guess that there is a legitimate reason for her to speak this way that we just don't know about, okay? But don't speak about your husbands this way. But she plays her hand. She wants David to realize, I get it. His, his heart is so wicked. She goes on. He is just like his name. His name is Fool. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now listen to this. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, she's Abigail speaking to David here, Kept my master from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. Wow. May all of them be like Nabal. What newsflash did she get? Nabal is wealthy. May they all be like Nabal. Hmm. Skipping down verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. And I read the next one to you. That's a prophetic word. Even Abigail knows something about the prophecies concerning David becoming king. And she doesn't want his name, his reputation, to be tarnished by such a harsh act. David was going to kill all the men in Nabal's household. David realizes this is wise. You just spared him, and you spared all those men, and you spared me a future regret. Thank you. As it would happen... Nabal was partying that night, got drunk, woke up in the morning, finds out what she did. He has a heart attack, and 10 days later, he dies. And this is what it says in verse uh, 39, skipping down just a little bit. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 38. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Do you know what happened to King Saul on Mount Gilboa? Granted, he was 70 years old, but on Mount Gilboa, he died at the hands of the Philistines. Well, he technically took his own life falling on his sword, but he was mortally wounded, and he died. David did not have to lift a hand against Saul. God brought his own judgment. In God's timing, in God's perfect timing, David became king. David did not have to force anything. No shortcuts. I want to just list several. Actually, there's seven parallels. I'm not going to spend much time on this. If you want to try and write them down, you may. But the, the, the prophetic historian that's writing this purposefully sandwiches the story of Nabal in between the two times David spared King Saul's life, even as David spared Nabal's life. God is wanting to say something here. Three chapters on this subject. David's not going to cut corners. He's going to let God bring the prophetic word to pass. All right, number one, Nabal's name is fool. And according to chapter 26, verse 21, 
Saul was a fool. Nabal was a Calebite. The word Caleb comes from the Hebrew word, and, and it's the same three consonants that means dog. David, in chapter 24, verse four, 25, verse 14, excuse me, 24, verse 14, he says, what did you come out to look for, a dead dog, a flea? Because David is not. By implication, hmm, maybe Saul is. Nabal was a Calebite. Now, Caleb's one of my heroes, okay? Nothing against Caleb in, in the book of Joshua and Judges. Nothing against him. But the author wants to make a play on that word, at that name, because Nabal was a Calebite. Number three, they have similar character. They're surly and mean. Saul, jealous and angry. We read about this. They think only of themselves. Number four, Nabal has 300 sheep. Saul, we are told in chapter 24 and 26, has 3,000 chosen men. They oversee 3,000. The epitome of Saul's arrogance was setting up a monument to himself, back in chapter 13, in Carmel, which happens to be where Nabal lives. Hmm. Maybe Nabal encouraged this as a political move. I don't know. It doesn't say. But how arrogant to set up a monument to yourself. Wow. Moving on. Number six, Saul's spiritual heart failed him. Nabal's physical heart failed him. And then lastly, both of these men highly offended David. But David chose not to kill them. Absolute. David refused to take either of their lives. He left it up to the Lord. And both of them, that's exactly what God did. David refused to take a shortcut to fulfill God's prophetic ends, his prophetic words. Can I say that shortcuts, at least here, are generally inspired by both impatience and selfish ambition? And I want us to spend the remainder of our time looking at this. Because I would venture to say that... <coughs> <clears throat> sometimes the church as a whole or us individually feel as if God is calling us to do something and we, we seek to force it rather than leaving it in God's hands. How about, well, we, we were watching a movie. Um, the movie was so bad. It, it was like right at the end of the movie, we turned it off. Shut it off. You know why? Because the man in the movie was married to a very surly, mean woman. She was attractive, but her character was deplorable. And you realize that this man is interested in another woman. Actually, a woman she had a child by many, many years ago before he got married. At the end of the movie... He basically says to his wife, you're gone. I really love this woman. And we just said, nope, mm-mm, shut it off. Now, in our day, that makes sense. If someone is keeping you from being happy, hey, look for happiness somewhere else. Why spend the rest of your life so miserable? Isn't that the way our world thinks? Hey, if you're not happy, divorce the woman, divorce the man. But what does God's word say? God's word, he says, doesn't matter. Till death do you part. That is totally contrary to the way our generation thinks. It's about self-pleasing. I love when Francis Chan preached his sermon about those selfies, right? We are a selfie generation. It, no slam against people who take selfies. Don't take it that far. But can I just say that is characteristic of our generation. It's all about me. And if I'm not happy, I'm going to find a way to be happy, even though God's word says don't do that. And God's word says don't do it because in the end, you will live with regret. Of course, the movie is not going to show that. So if he is not happy with his new wife, 
according to his principle, I'll just go out and get a new one. Second divorce, third marriage, moving on, right? Many times when God has called us to something, we can take the shortcut. We can force the hand. How about we're up for promotion? Can I just tell you that if you are ever up for a promotion, don't do this. All right, are you listening? Don't do this. Don't start talking to the influential people who are going to make who are going to make the decision about promotion. Don't start talking to them about the other candidate in a negative way. Don't do it. Resist that. Even though you don't believe this person is fit, even though you know secrets about this person because you've actually talked with them personally, don't do it. You let God be the one to bring your promotion. You let God be the one to not give him the promotion. And can I just say this? That if the other person gets the promotion, don't say, oh my goodness, Pastor Mike was just so wrong. I should have said something. I can still remember. Regardless of your viewpoint of Pat Robertson, back in the 1980s when I was in seminary, he was running for president. And I can still remember there were, if I'm remembering correctly, six Republican candidates. And um, William Buckley was the moderator. He was interviewing them. And it was kind of a debate. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to and he, he, he gave each person he asked this question to another candidate. And he says, I want you to tell me why I shouldn't vote for this candidate here and why I should vote for you. And Pat Robertson looked at him and he said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'll tell you why you should vote for me, but I'm not going to tell you why you shouldn't vote for the other guy. And I respect all of these candidates. That, that took some godly conviction. He could have had the opportunity to slam it. And he, I'm sure he, there was dirt. There was probably dirt on all of them. And he could have said something, but he chose not to. You know what? If I'm going to become president, I will let God do that. Now, he didn't. But I, I do believe that it did something within the Christian community in waking them up to the necessity of Christians being involved in politics. Regardless, he said, I'm not going to pull the trigger. I'll tell you why I think you should vote for me, but I am not going to speak negatively about any of these men. Wow. Buckley just was like, okay, you're lost. It wasn't. He stood by biblical principles and personal conviction, and he did not force anything. Now, I don't know if he believed that he was going to become president one day or not, but he didn't. God had different plans. But he let God take care of this. And he did not have any regrets. You know, sometimes to make others happy, we give them promises that we're not quite sure we can fulfill. But by telling them, hey, we're going to do this or I'm going to give you that, boy, they're happy now. They're not angry with me anymore. Kids, maybe your parents have done that. But I tell you what, if you become parents, don't do that. If your word is your bond, don't go against your word. If you promise something, as far as it depends on you, make it happen. I have had to apologize to my kids because apparently I gave a promise and I didn't realize it or I didn't remember, and I had to apologize. I am so sorry. Can we be man or woman enough, moms, dads, to be able to do that? Okay. Now, I'm going to – I'm going to – round our time out right now, I want to ask, I'm going to give you five good questions to ask when you are faced with a dilemma similar to David's and you're wondering, hmm, God did prophesy to me and my men know about this, that one day I will have opportunity. Now, I'm going to quote it directly so I don't botch it. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Is that a promise or is that a test? You know, many times God tells us about things, but there is a test in there somewhere. Prophecies about David rising up to become king. Enemy, 
You're going to have an opportunity to deal with them as you wish. What are you going to do, David? Are you going to stick by biblical principles? Or are you going to take a shortcut? Five questions. Am I getting ahead of God? I want you to write these down if you're taking notes. Am I getting ahead of God? Abraham found him in a, himself in a similar situation. He was promised that he would give birth to a son and that that son would eventually, from his body, his loins, as they said back then, be a, produce a nation. But Sarah was barren. And Abraham was well along in years. He was in his 90s. So Sarah said, look, God gave you a promise. You know what? Maybe he just wants you to take things into your own hands. And so she made a huge mistake and gave her mistress to Abraham. <laughs> now, no, 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 no. I realized that was a little bit more cultural, culturally acceptable, but not according to God's word. According to culture, it was. Abraham did so, and he regretted it. From him, from her, this woman, came Ishmael. Ishmael today has become the Arabs that Israel for centuries has been fighting against. Yeah, I, I think Abraham blew that one. I kind of think so. Am I getting ahead of God? Question number two. Am I seeking to build a stage or a platform? Now, I hope I don't need to interpret what I just said because I've preached on this before. But it, in short, a stage is something of an opportunity that I seize to promote myself. The heart of it is selfish ambition. The heart of it is fame. The heart of it is more money. The heart of it is more power. It's me up front on my stage, and I built that stage. You know, when God builds a stage, we don't call it a stage. I'm going to use a different word, if you will. He builds a platform. He did this for Daniel. Daniel was raised up as second in command of all of the Persian army. Daniel chapter 6. He was one of three, and he was going to get a promotion. And the other two satraps did not like this idea. They were administrators. And so they tried to sabotage Daniel. But it didn't work. Daniel did not choose any shortcuts. He stood by his character. He stood by his integrity. He still worshiped God, even though through these other two men, they convinced the king to outlaw that. Nope. I am still seeking. I'm going to put it in New Testament language. I'm going to still seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Can I just say, let that be an overarching principle that you follow throughout your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his, and his righteousness. Always make Jesus your first love. And if you do that, God will bring to pass what God desires. You do not need a stage. Don't build yourself one. Let God provide the platform. And with that platform, Daniel had opportunities to share the good news about God's kingdom with kings and high officials. Now, I'm not saying that that is some glorious thing. They're just men like you and me. A platform just simply takes you to a level to advance his kingdom. That's all it does. Low level, high level, low platform, high platform, it doesn't matter. It is a platform from which you are seeking to extend the kingdom of God. Why? Because you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That is all that we are concerned about. Everything else, my family and raising my family, I needed to make money to be able to do that. So I worked hard and I have continued to work hard. It's not because I'm trying to just make boatloads of money. I'm trying to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and provide for my family and, and bless them. And I've seen God do so many miracles because there just comes a point in which, hey, business totally tanked. And God did miracles because I believe God has promised me 
and he is going to continue to take care of me. He's given me a platform. May I never seek to build myself a stage. Number four. Um, oh, um, num I'm sorry, number three. Is what I am wanting to do in line with God's word. Now, here's something that's really hard. I'm going to encourage you, by the way, take some time to fast and pray and spend time in God's word. Yes, seek the counsel of others. I'm going to get to that in just a moment, though. But you know what? Here's my here's like a, a, an addendum to that question. It's another question. What do you do when you want something so much, the line, listen, the line of God's word becomes blurred to you. Mm. That's happened to me at times. And, and I've had to just take a step back and I said, okay, my heart's really getting wrapped up in this. I'm going to take a step back and I, I'm, I'm just going to spend time in God's presence. God, what is it that you're wanting? Is, is this really what you want to do? I'm not going to get into some of those stories because I, I, my time's running on, but I, I tell you what, church, don't ever compromise the word of God. If you start seeing, you, you feel your heart being tugged in a different direction and you're really excited about it and you're kind of, am I, is this in line with God's word and you just keep running? Stop. Take stock. Seek God. And that leads me to Number four, question number four, who am I getting counsel from? Do you just go to people that you are pretty sure are going to say yes and pat you on the back and say, go for it? Sounds good to me. Because if you're going to do that, you're just rubber stamping what you want. Here's what I do. There are times in which I will purposefully go to people that I'm pretty sure will disagree with me. Because I am wanting to see this from a different angle. I'm not necessarily going to do what they say. I might. But I'm going to get counsel. And it's not just going to be those that I think are going to say, hey, yeah, great idea, Mike. I'm going to seek counsel. There are so many times in which I had maybe a, a business idea, but it, it was going to cost money. And I said, I'll share it with my wife. And she is so tight when it comes to finances. And I can be too, okay? It's just, this was my dream, and I was just, oh, yeah, we could do this, and we could, this could work. Hun, what do you think about this? I, no. Mm -mm. No? Well, tell me why. So she gives me five good reasons why not, and they're not one, two, three, four, five, right? Okay, like Lucy did, no. <laughs> but there were five really good reasons. I said, wow. I knew I started her counsel for a reason. And I, and I do that with my wife when it comes to finances anyway, but seek out people. Rehoboam, do you remember him? King Solomon's son. Solomon dies, and 10 northern tribes come to him at Jerusalem and says, hey, look, your dad, no offense, but he was so oppressive. He enslaved so many of our children. High taxes, which, by the way, were only 10%. High taxes. You know, and, and, and look, we need you to change some of these policies. Rehoboam said, okay, well, you know what? I'll think about that, and I'll get back with you. So he went to his father's counselors, and they had such good wisdom. Rehoboam listened to them, listened to them. They gave reasons. Listened to them. He didn't like what they said, so he, do you know who he went to? He went to the people, his, his peers, that he was pretty sure he knew what they were going to say. And they gave him bad counsel. Oh, you tell him, you think my father Solomon was rough? You haven't seen nothing yet. That's when the ten tribes separated, forming the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Bad mistake. He went to seek counsel from the people that he knew would say yes to him. Lastly, do you already have your mind made up? If you're going to seek counsel, if you're really going to pray, you need to hold that thing lightly in your hands. In your hands, yes, but lightly open, offering it up in prayer, like a sacrifice, like Isaac on the altar. Okay, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want. Are you really? Because if your mind's already made up and you're saying that, mm, not sure you're uh, telling the truth there to the Lord, and he'll already know it. 
are you really saying, God, what should I do? Or are you just wanting him to bless your really good idea? So many times when we pray, that's what we're doing. For David, his heart was humble. I'm sure he asked some of these questions. And he had to, he let, had to let the spirit of God ply his heart and really allow him to see what was inside. Do I want this kingship too much? Wow, it would be nice not to be a fugitive running for my life every day. What an opportunity. If he took Saul's life, I'm going to tell you this. If he became king, and there's a good chance he wouldn't, because he would have built such a bad reputation. You killed the king, never letting you be king. He may have been able to get his own tribe, Judah, and hoodwinked them and had them follow him. He, if he did kill Saul, and he did become king, it would, it would come back at him because we reap what we sow. Remember that. What are you sowing right now? What principles are you following? You know what? I'm going to just close with this. And it's a story you've heard, so I'm, just, I'm going to be quick with it. But I, I need us to see something here. There was an opportunity for me to become a, an associate pastor of a church right there in Virginia Beach. That's where I had been for the last four years um, for while I was in school and then two years after in this particular church. There was an opportunity to become an associate pastor. I'd been looking forward to this. That's why I went to school. Now, it would initially be part-time, but then it would open up as finances increased to full-time. The opportunity, the pastor came to me, and he said, Mike, we're looking at doing it next week. The finances are there. So I want you to pray about, pray about it and get back with me. I've been looking for this opportunity for two years. I wanted it. So I came and I spoke with Meredith, shared with her, but there was an unsettledness in my heart about this. So we prayed. And that night, for one day, we fasted and we prayed. Not like one day is a long time or anything, but we got together in the evening. We prayed together, and then we shared what we believed God had been speaking to our hearts. And this is what God chose to do. Throughout the day, my heart and Meredith's heart got burdened heavier and heavier and heavier to say no. Not because it was a bad opportunity or anything, but say no. I just have something different. So we took a step, and I, and I had to tell um, the, the senior pastor, I said, you know what? God is having me tell you no, and I don't know why. This is a great opportunity. I love you, brother. I was on the leadership team, and God was opening this door, but I was to say no. That was on a Tuesday. The following Saturday, actually, it was the Saturday right before I, I spoke with him. That's right. I remember now. But that Saturday, we were renting a house, by the way. The, and, and we were, anyway, I, I, we, at that time, we were going month to month because we didn't know what God was going to do. And that night, the landlord gave me a call. He said, Mike. You know, how you doing? How's the family? So on and so forth. He's trying to say something, but he's not saying it. What it what, what's up? How are you doing? Tell me what's on your mind. He said, Mike, we were at the dinner table today. I'm starting a business out in California, and we have to sell this. He owned a large house. He owned that smaller house, too. And he said, Mike, I hate to do this to you, but I need to move my family into your, your house that you're renting. And we need to sell this house, and I need to move to California. And within uh, a little bit, as soon as things are underway, my family's going to come and join me. And he felt like this was the worst news that he could give me, but it was total confirmation that the Lord was moving us in this direction. I didn't give him a call. I didn't need to do anything. See, God did this. So I'm just going to encourage you. We are called to always move forward in triumphal procession. 
We don't need to force this. It is not up to you. And I'm not saying don't be aggressive in what God calls you to, but can you allow God to close a door that he doesn't want you to walk through, or are you locking it already? Nope. I'm going to go through this door. I'm just so convinced God wants me to do it. Regardless of the counsel, are you seeking people who are just yes men to you and saying, yeah, you should do it, of course. What godly counsel are you seeking? Are, is it really in an open hand? And if it is, God's going to do something absolutely amazing. In Revelation 2, it says that he is the one who opens doors and closes doors. Only him. He opens doors and he closes others. And if you're in a situation right now in which you're just wondering, God, is this what you want me to do? Can you let God shut the door or open it without forcing it? I'm a type of person that if there's a block and I believe God wants me to do I'll find a way around it. I'll be like a little mole. I'll dig underneath it. I'll get around those barriers one way or another. I may not be strong enough to jump over it, but I'll find a way. And sometimes God just has to lock that door and make it impossible. And I just say, God, you understand my heart. I believe that you're calling me in this direction, but if I am missing you, lock the door. Hit me over the head with a two by four. I can be thick sometimes. Get my attention. Move in the situation. I can't tell you how many times God answered that prayer and he, he shut the door. He just shut it. Okay. But you see, it's not because I was moving in a direction that was against God's will. God's word was, your enemy will be in your hands. Do with him as you wish. David chose the right thing to do. The line at that moment, I'm sure, was blurred to him. But afterwards, he realized, nope, I am not taking his life. Let God open that door or close it. Can we pray right now? Father, I just ask you that your spirit would be speaking to our hearts through your word tonight. And I'm asking you, Father, that you would speak very specifically to our hearts. You bring to mind those things that we've been pursuing, and, and maybe they're your will, in which case, God, would you please, in your timing, open that door. But if they're not, can we trust you enough to close it? And I just pray, Father, let our hearts be humbled before you and allow you to be the one to bring this to pass. Would you do that, Father? We trust you. You're leading us forward, God, always in triumphal procession. And what you have in store for us down the road, it will be so very good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.